You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Over 7 million different animals inhabit our planet. This is a perfect species to kick the month off, the goblin shark. Good luck describing this thing. What can they teach us? It's gotten through some really gnarly things that have happened (laughs) to our environment um, and to our planet Earth over these hundreds of millions of years. So what, what could it teach us? Many species are in crisis and need your help. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com. Welcome. (laughs) Welcome to the All Creatures Podcast. This is Chris. And I'm Angie. Welcome to Spooky October. Our favorite time of year. It is. And that was our spooky intro that clearly we need uh, better sound effects. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, oh my goodness. We have so much fun doing this. But I, this is a perfect species to kick the month off. The goblin shark. Good luck describing this thing when we get there. Oh, it's so fun. It's an ancient alien of the deep. That's really all we need to say, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, man, no, it's a fun species. They hang out in the pitch black zone of the ocean, mm-hmm. uh, and they are crazy looking and they do crazy behaviors for hunting their food. And Chris, what really struck me too is the goblin shark is a living fossil. Mm-hmm. And although its look and some of its behaviors are bizarre for sharks in general, whatever it's doing it's doing well because they are designed perfect for survival for where they live. They, I love sharks. I love covering sharks. They are some of our most downloaded episodes. They, there's so much mystique with them. So hopefully today we can, you know, shine some light on this fish because this thing is, it, it's radical. I mean, that's how I put it. It's just radical looking. It's spooky. <laughs> That's very, it is spooky though. You look at his pictures and you're like, holy smokes, that is a freaky looking fish. 
I did. I just kept clicking on different ones. I'm like, well, let me see it from this angle. How about this angle? Okay, how about this one? And yes, it's uh, definitely a unique looking shark to say the least. Yeah. And my, my, my eldest son, Rourke, he asked me to do this species a while back. And I told him, well, we'll fit it in at some point. And now I'm, I'm, I'm excited we can finally get to them. They're just a, it's a fun species, going to be a fun podcast, you know, a, a different type of shark than some of the typical ones we, we think of. So stay tuned for that. Just really quick, Christy joined us on Patreon this month. Thank you so much. Angie and I, before we recorded, we're kind of brainstorming on, on how we can engage our Patreon supporters more, looking at maybe doing some Zoom chats and maybe some other species. So we're going to put some polls out there here this week. So people can give us some feedback on how best to engage you. Well, yeah, Chris, and maybe they can help us decide which spooky species we should cover towards the end of the month because our list keeps growing. I think we're up to like seven or eight and we I know. are going to only pick four, right? <laughs> I know. So. There's so many good ones. It's just like, oh, there, there's a couple birds. They just do insane behaviors that we want to cover. So I think we can only pick one of them, but we'll we'll see. We'll see. Well, this week, Chris, I have a couple shout outs. I first want to thank Wombat Kaylee uh, for giving us a five-star review on iTunes and uh, just letting us know that we're doing a great job and requesting a Wombat episode. Mm. Uh, And I think that would be really fun because I know or I've read that they poop cubes. And the physiologist in me, the nutritionist in me, loves poop. uh, And I'm very fascinated by this cube poopage. So, uh, yes. So stay tuned. Hopefully we'll put that on the, on the list for later this year. And also, Chris, I want to take a quick moment to highlight one of our listeners, Josh. He reached out to me about a week or so ago, uh, just letting us know that he's a fan of the podcast and that we've helped inspire him to change his studies from animation to pursuing wildlife filmmaking. So that really was very touching for me to read. And Josh really wants to help out and give back to wildlife this uh, this winter season. And so Josh came up with this passion pro- project idea of making endangered species card decks. So he showed me a couple pictures of them where the drawing on the cards are just beautiful. You've got the cotton top tamarind and next to the ten of diamonds. And then what makes these cards really special is there's also facts below the card. So while you're playing and you're waiting for your partner or whoever who's taking their time, maybe playing poker and trying to bluff you, you can be reading really interesting wildlife animal facts about endangered species to make the game that much more interesting. And of course, learn along the way. And once Josh made a couple of these endangered species card decks, he thought, you know what, maybe I can sell these and give the proceeds to wildlife organizations. So he reached out to me and we started talking about it and I'm going to help promote him and his passion project. And I hope all of our listeners will as well to go to Josh's Instagram page at Josh, J O S dot C dot Carter, which is C A R T E R. And if you direct message him, uh, you can place an order for a endangered species card deck. I know I'm going to be getting a couple uh, this winter season, and I think they're great stocking stuffers and a really unique present. And he's charging $20, but he is donating 
all of the proceeds to his two favorite wildlife organizations, which are Born Free USA, which is perfect timing because we'll be talking to somebody from that group really soon. And also Josh is a huge fan of Sea Legacy, um, which is a nonprofit by Paul Nicklin, and it's just an amazing nonprofit as well. So we will put those two organizations on our websites, plus Josh's information at josh.c.carter, so that you can check him out on Instagram. And I just was so impressed that he's donating all the proceeds. He's not taking a cut at all. He just wants to do this to help uh, wildlife and to basically uh, help educate people and while they're having fun. And I'm just really proud of him for taking his talents and using them to help animals. And it just goes to show that although it's cool to be out in the field or out on a boat collecting data, uh, there's so many different ways that we can help endangered species. And Josh has shown us how it's done. So thank you, Josh. And Go to our show notes for more information about Josh and his endangered species card decks. And I just think it's a wonderful present. I know this year for my stocking stuffers, for my husband, John, I'm trying to do only um, only little small gifts that are donating to wildlife organizations. So I'm doing some research on that. And don't tell John he's getting some playing cards for Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> And then just, I want to highlight his Instagram again, and I'll put this in the show notes. It's at joshc.carter, J-O-S-H dot C dot Carter, C-A-R-T-E-R. Awesome. Yeah, great. All right, I've been waiting for this one. Ever since we decided to do this species, and I looked at it, and I laughed. I literally laughed out loud. I said, oh, gosh, how in the heck is Angie going to describe (laughs) this fish? This, this, I, I mean, vampire squid probably way back when, uh, the star nose mole, that's very freaky looking. Spoon bill was fun. Try to describe that bill. I remember this. Good luck. I'm going to sit back and enjoy it. Describe this fish. I, I, I'll set this up with, I'm not going to do it justice. And so that's why we love our show notes or of course, Google image, but the goblin shark is a very fear, fearsome looking fish. And so it's why it's perfect for spooky October. Um, and what really separates it from a normal shark, if you just think of a tiger shark or white shark is the snout or the nose. So the nose is the shape of like an ironing board or a small surfboard, if you can picture that. And that's, so it's a really flattened snout that protrudes from the top of their head. And that's pretty much where it ends. No, 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 no. So, so we got this big, long kind of uh, surfboard or ironing board sticking out. Um, and then they have these small beady eyes, which we'll talk about. Animals that live in dark places don't need large eyes. Uh, but then we have to focus on their jaw. So their nose, if you can picture it like this ironing board, their jaw is way back below it. And... We'll talk a lot about Jaws today, and I don't mean Jaws like the movie um, that, of course, made all of us in the 80s fearsome, uh, but we'll be talking about the goblin jaws that are very unique uh, in shark physiology in that 
they're movable, and they can extend to catch prey. So that's like the little hint that we'll talk a lot more about today. So radical. It's radical. It is. I'm still gobsmocked at this. It is alien. It is a real life. Anybody seen the movie? Going back to an old movie, Alien, how they extend their jaw out. We'll get to that, but. It's crazy. It's crazy. It's pretty crazy. And then and not only do they have that jaw that they extend out, but they just because they have this ironing board on top that sets over the jaws, it just gives a really weird, it's just a weird looking um, nose and head. But its body is also very different than, what, uh, than a typical shark. Um, rather than having denticles, like the white shark or something like that, which are the sharp kind of pointed scales that are found on most sharks. So if you run your hand one way, it might be smooth, but then if you rub it, run it the other way, it's going to be sharp-ish. The body of the goblin shark is flabby and rubbery, and they do not have the denticles. And their skin has blood vessels that are very close to the surface of the skin. And so the shark when it's pulled out of the water, it has almost a pinkish gray color to it. Some even describe it as purple. And it's really lacking in pigment from what other sharks have to typically be like the gray or almost black or brown on top and white on bottom. Uh, The goblin shark doesn't have any of that. It just has this pinkish grayish purple color or almost even white gray, depending on um, the different samples that have been uh, found throughout its history. And the teeth of the goblin shark are also pretty different in that they're slender. They're like fangs or needles. uh, I was reading them described Uh, similar to those of a sand tiger shark, more for grabbing like a needle than tearing flesh. Um, So just really... (laughs) Not very beautiful. <laughs> no, no. I'm always everybody knows I'm always trying to find the uh, uh, the good about the animal, and a lot of animals that I, I Chris thinks are not attractive. I'm like, no, but it's so cute as a baby. But I, uh, this one is even in the shark world, it's probably the some describe it as the most hideous of all shark species. Uh, but moving down its body, um, it has a lot of small fins, and so the um, Dorsal fins that run along the top are pretty small. The pectoral fins next to its gills are smallish in length. Um, The pelvic fin and the anal fin are small. And then the caudal tail fin is different. Um, It's like a cross between a thrasher shark that has a really long whip-like tail and maybe a normal shark because it's it's long, um, probably like a third of its body length and triangular in shape. It's a much different shape than the other sharks that we know that have the more of the V type caudal fin. Yeah. More like eel like almost is how I kind of. There, that's yeah, a great way to describe yeah. it. Yes. So I give myself about a C minus and no, I'm okay. I'm okay with that. Way, you did great. <laughs> you did amazing because. There's well, no I way. redid my notes like 10 times, so I probably should have, I, I tried to nail it, but I don't know if I did that, but you just got to Google it. it, it it's uh, uh, the pictures don't do it justice and um, it's no, just fascinating. It, it, it's such an obscure looking animal. But I did read Chris that 
it was thought once to look like a goblin. And so a, a, a specimen that was caught many, many years ago off the sh- off shores of Japan, I think maybe in the 1800s, uh, the original drawings, they didn't have cameras back then, of this animal, uh, they drew it with the jaws protruded, which we'll talk a lot about. And so the people that were looking at it thought that it looked like a goblin. It, it, yeah, it, it does. It does. And, and, Whatever and here, goblins are supposed to look like. <laughs> it looks like this. It looks like this. What is even more fascinating is this is not a small shark. You can read the literature and it says they grow up to 12 feet long or three and a half meters, way up to four or 500 pounds, which is what, 220 kilograms. But underwater cameras that have captured some of these, they've done a regression analysis and they think they can get up to five, six meters or 18 to 20 feet. Oh yeah, Chris. Well, there was one that was caught off the coast of Florida by a fisherman and he threw it back. But before he threw it back, he took a photo of it and he estimated that it was about 18 feet long. Mm-hmm. And so it's hard because he didn't get out the measuring tape because uh, he, to quote the fisherman, he has some wicked teeth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yes, yes. But that was his guesstimate. And um, and yeah, and there was another one that was caught and thrown back that um, was guess- was thought to may- maybe be 20 feet. Right. So that's definitely bigger than what the literature says, right. but there's still a lot that we're learning about the goblin shark, which is going to be a theme through, throughout the yeah, podcast today, which is fun though, right? It's, it's I think it's fun to, uh, to talk about these really obscure species. Right. And it's, it's, you know, what lurks in those depths below? We, we, we don't know. We don't as, know. It, yeah. As we're going to talk more about it. What, we do know more about the range of the goblin shark is pretty kind much of kind of, of <laughs> is you know worldwide right it's, they've got they've gotten specimens off California off near you the Gulf of Mexico near South New- America Africa New Zealand Europe, New Zealand I know my depths uh, Australia Japan so pretty much in in every ocean uh, you know along the equator. So uh, we we don't have a clear, clear picture because they, they don't tag these sharks and track them yet, but, you know, pretty much find them worldwide. But Chris, I think it's a perfect time to highlight too, that they are, they have been found in all these locations, but they're very, it's very, very rare to find one at all. Um, in fact, I think since they've been like keeping track, there's maybe been like a hundred or so that have, eaten, most of them are caught by fishermen like in their trawls or something like that. Very few have been seen. In fact, the fishermen I talked about from Florida, Noah, um, who investigated the story to you know, make sure that it was true and all of this and to check on um, the photos, estimated that this fisherman was maybe one of 10 people to ever see a live one and like throw it back. And they've been tried, a few of them have been caught live and tried to, be, tried to keep them in an aquarium for uh, for an extended period of time, and they passed away after like one day. Yeah, yeah. And I think it was like two individuals. And so most of them that are caught, most of the information that we know about them are from uh, dead samples that have uh, hmm. been um, caught right. by fishermen by mistake. Right, and they, I mean, from what you you read about their habitat, they have seen smaller 
goblin sharks near the surface, but a lot mm-hmm. of them have been observed deep ocean, three to four thousand feet. You know, right. or, you know, one thousand to thirteen hundred meters down. I mean, that's where they live. That that's their habitat, and we don't know a lot about down there, right? Like. You know, talking about why I care about this species, they obviously are an important oceanic predator. You know, again, sharks are so critical to the food chain or food web. It's just, you know, we, we talk a lot about sharks and why they're so important and they are experiencing tremendous ecological pressure. Another key predator in our oceanic biome. Well, and they're just so darn unique and cool, and they're a living fossil, which I know we'll talk a lot about when we get to evolution. Uh, they've been here way before us. They'll probably be here after us if we don't totally destroy the oceans. Uh, but a lot of researchers are concerned about all of the trash that's in the ocean um, landing that does sink down to those deep depths um, that may be accidentally gobbled up by these sharks uh, when they're hunting for other prey. So uh, that's the thing we, we we do know about plastics in the ocean and garbage and is that uh, it's everywhere. There's oh, there's yeah. no there's no safe place where it's not. And it does sink, it does float, it gets stuck on things. Uh, so it's just, it's a real danger. Oh, they have plastic bags at the bottom of the Mariana Trench. You know, it's right. one of the things they saw floating by and it's, it doesn't take much to connect the dots and say, I'm sure some goblin sharks have, have died because of that, you know, sure. or, or, or plastic. Now I'm going to get on my soapbox this week, Angie, and talk about deep sea mining <laughs> because thinking about where goblin sharks live, this is a part of the, the planet you and I haven't really talked a lot about. We haven't covered, gosh, I think this is probably one of the deepest diving species, not diving, but deepest living you know, we, we know some whale species we've covered dive deep, but, and I still get over elephant seals dive super deep. But thinking about that biome, we don't know a lot. We, we, we really don't know. Even doing some of this research, our oceanic scientists say we know more about space than we know about our own oceans. Isn't that crazy? It is. And I love crazy. NASA. You know, I love NASA. I, I support space exploration, what we're doing on Mars, the moon, whatever. I, I always support that. But it does make you pause and think that, you know, the, the the billions or trillions that are spent in space exploration, we we don't know about our own planet, you know, in some of these places. Well, not only do we not know about it, I feel like we need to save our own planet. That's, that's always my little, like all the money that... All these people are spending to, you know, for for ten minutes to go in a rocket into the sky and then back, or into orbit and then back. I'm just like, well, couldn't we like save some of the Amazon rainforest with that, no. or some goblin no. sharks? So, I'm, I know you're, yeah, I love NASA. You really love NASA, yeah. uh, and but that's well, it's this and this isn't even NASA. This is a lot of you know private industry private too. Stuff, so, yeah. anyways, it's a different pod for a different day, but. Uh, we there's definitely money that needs to be spent here to help our mm-hmm. oceans and our and our, uh, our rainforests and our own planet with global climate change. But yeah. yes, that was my Mar- soapbox for one second. No, now. no, no, it's good. It's good. <laughs> Mars is not an option for us. It is not it, right. Mars- that's what I'm saying. I mean, I want to see pictures of it, and I think 
it's awesome to collect some samples there, but in the same instance, uh, there is no plan B, planet no. B, right? No, there is not. Mars is not an option for us. It is here on beautiful uh, Mother Earth. So I I started digging and, and started looking up deep sea mining. And this isn't about gas and oil and, and oil exploration, which I know here in the Southern Hemisphere, there's concerns, you know, exploitation of our Southern Oceans. Gosh, I go back to our blue whale episode way back in our first year and concerns there of disrupting whale habitat. No, this is more about mining the seabed for minerals. Okay. Now, seabed mining does take place. We know that, but usually in shallower waters. So they get things like sand. We collect sand, tin, uh, diamond mining, gold mining. That does happen in shallower waters where it's easy, cheap, and accessible. This is deep sea bed mining where you're going greater than 200 meters down, you know, or what is that? Like four or 500 feet down. And it's an emerging field. And there's, there's some major concerns because there's a lot of companies on earth ready to pounce and start mining these, these deep sea beds. The problem is, so I, I went and, and a very good website was the Ocean Foundation, and they, they talk about deep sea mining, and they do say it's like it's very expensive, but because of technology, it's becoming more profitable. So now we're at the point where we can go and mine and make this a profitable enterprise for a lot of mining companies. So they are gearing up and ready to to start mining these these seabeds. Now, right now, the exploitation of our deep seas are monitored or the authorities are the International Seabed Authority, ISA, and then the United Nations Convention of the Laws of the Sea. So they are coming up with rules and regulations on what companies can do in these deep sea seabeds to mine. Now, right now, the ISA has extended 29 contracts that has given companies permission to go and map seabeds for mineral resources. So it's moving. It's happening, right? It's happening. They're, they're trying to put rules in place. Now, conservationists, scientists are very concerned because like we, we opened up with this, we don't know a lot about our deep seabeds. We don't know what's living down there. We don't know about deep sea corals. We don't know about all these animals that are in these habitats. We know very little about the goblin shark. We, 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 we don't. You're right. And so they have major concerns because mining is very destructive. Bottom line. I mined gold with my dad as, as a young kid. That was what we did in the summers. He was a high school teacher. And in the summers we went and mined and we dredged up rivers and we looking back. Did you find anything? Oh yeah. We always found gold, but enough to pay bills. It was, it was a, a, my dad's hobby more than anything. You know, we weren't getting rich because (laughs) in the the gold rush in the United States, they cleared out most of the big pieces of gold. That's true. Well, you're making more money than me because I loved on Lake Michigan to collect uh, beach glass and uh, Petoskey stones and other really cool stones, which those are definitely, (laughs) but it's a, it's a labor of love. 
Yeah. And this was all in Northern California, Southern Oregon. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. I, I just, it was a great childhood because I could fish and be in the outdoors, but it was very destructive. And, and mining bottom line is very destructive period. It, it destroys that, that little habitat where you're at. So the big concern, and, and I saw this in, in our own, my own experience, you go down there and you start dredging up or pulling out minerals from the deep, deep seabeds, you will create massive plumes of sediment of, you know, silica, sand, whatever's down there. And all of a sudden you have this massive plume, which could suffocate, kill fish, life, whatever is down there. We don't know, but it, it is a very destructive process. I guess I can just kind of like, like, like deep sea vents. We know there's abundance of life around these deep sea vents. They grow without sunlight. There's so much we can learn from them going down and destroying these sea vents and other parts to get at these minerals. We don't know the impact that's going to have on the ecosystem there up and down the chain or the the food web. So there's a lot of people that are very alarmed at this because we have no idea what this is going to do to our oceans. Now, why this came into the news is I ran across a story where this tiny island in Micronesia called Nauru, N-A-U-R-U, which is just north of me at the equator here in New Zealand, population 10,000, tiny little island nation is now pushing to expedite deep sea mining is pushing the UN ISA to allow them to start mining within two years. And this is being supported by the metals company out of Canada. This was actually used to be called deep green, but now it is a mining company that is pushing this because they want to start polymetallic nodules, which are minerals for electronics like cobalt, we've talked about that with the cell gorillas, phones. right, mm-hmm. and cell phones and it and everything. So they're saying that this mining company is saying we need to hurry up and and get these minerals to support, you know, this uh, a green economy. They say the world wants to you know reduce carbon emissions by 2050. So we need to get down there and get these minerals so we can build batteries, longer lasting batteries, car batteries, cell phone batteries, all these things. And they're using that as a tool to push this permit to allow them to mine an area the size of France and Germany combined. Oh, wow. In the ocean, right? And and Nauru is helping them do it because it's its own little nation and so obviously the mining companies dumping how much money. I mean, it doesn't take a brain scientist to figure this out. You know, they, they find this little economy, this little tiny Island nation saying, Hey, we want you to push this for us. It's a little maddening because you have this mining company seeing I can make billions of dollars or whatever it is by going down and dredging up all these minerals. I don't care about the environment really. Again, my opinion, I shouldn't let that leak in, but it is a little bit frustrating, I guess, from a conservation standpoint that it's being rushed mm-hmm, because we don't have the oversight. You know, that's a big, big concern of a lot of organizations. We, 
you know, they're saying if mining in the deep ocean is technologically challenging and expensive, independent oversight's even tougher. Like, you can't go down there and see the damage done. Until well, are they well exactly? And are they doing research to see what's even down there before they go down there? What species live mm-hmm. down there? No, they're not doing no, any of that. No, they're just going to go down and what is? It? I think then a lot in the states we call them usually typically like an environmental, yeah, like an environmental impact study uh, before you build anything on mm-hmm. the land, especially if it's like wooded or something like that. No, it, they can't do it. It's it's too expensive, and, and we don't have the again the technology and the time and the effort. I mean, so you, not only will you not have independent oversight, it's beyond national jurisdictions. It, there's no way protesters or anybody else can get out there. I mean, Greenpeace can maybe get out there and try to do something, but you know they're stretched thin. So environmental organizations can't go out and monitor anything. It it, it it's like a it's like the wild west in the United States where it's like anything goes. And even some, a lot of people are arguing that we don't need deep sea mining to meet our green technology needs. We don't. Right. So it, it, it was concerning. I actually saw a report here in New Zealand where a mining company got denied permits to mine off our coast uh, but they're appealing it and trying to get some of that those environmental impact statements to try to push it through our court system to allow them to go down there and start dredging up the seabeds. Well, there's just so many unknowns. I mean, there's a, yeah. a a massive oil spill off the coast of California in your old stomping grounds I right know. now. I know Orange County. I know it's you know humans are having an impact on the environment, but. So I, that's a quick look on what's going on. I will definitely, now that it's it's in my psyche and, and I'm going to monitor this and, you know, the next deep sea species we do, uh, I will definitely kind of see where we are in a few months and how this progresses. So right now within two years is when they want to start. So by 2023, they want to start dredging up the, the seabeds to collect these minerals. I ask myself, what can I do? What can you do as our listeners? The, I just the one thing I can always just push, and and I actually have some electronics I need to go recycle. Recycle your cell phones, recycle your computers, recycle your old laptops if you can. Just wipe your data, take them in there because those those components, those minerals, that cobalt that's in your cell phone can be reused, and that will reduce demand. But that's about all I can think of we can do right now. Well, that's an excellent point. We all have, or not, I shouldn't say we all, but a lot of us definitely have old electronics lying around. I mean, John and I have a box that we need to take to our electronic recycling place here uh, with several items in it. So it's just a matter of doing it. And Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. like you said, it's not going to stop the demand, but if we can do every little bit helps. If everybody does it, it helps. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, you got to... If we all do it, we'll make an impact. So off the soapbox, back to the goblin shark. But that does, in fact, that directly impacts goblin sharks. Oh, yes, of course. Mm -hmm. And all the life down there that... That we don't even know about. I know. Well, that's what they're saying. What life's down there that, again, when you and I talk about why care, we find a lot of, just for our own species, not exploiting them per se, but learn about you know, scientifically. So, you know, is the cure for cancer down there is, you know, what's down at the bottom of the oceans that we could learn about chemical bioluminescence. I mean, 
how do these species survive at these great depths, blah, blah, blah. So anyways. Well, yeah. I mean, the goblin shark is a living fossil. It can be traced over several million years. So it's gotten through some really gnarly things that have happened (laughs) to our environment um, and to our planet Earth over these hundreds of millions of years. So what, what could it teach us? At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Oh, well, yeah, the sharks jumping into evolution. That's a good segue. They've survived. These are the animals that survived. Yeah. Yeah, they're survivors, man. Yeah, that survived these mass extinctions that went on. It was these deep sea living uh, creatures. So, looking at goblin shark, you know, classification, this is uh, Chondrus chithes, cartilaginous fishes. There's over a thousand species of fish. That's the class. The order, which is interesting for goblin sharks, is laminiforms. So these are our mackerel sharks, mm-hmm. our great whites, our tigers, 17 species there. And then, like Angie said, this is, is and I'll talk about it here in a second, is an ancient shark. So it's got its own family. And it's the only living species in that family left. So it, it broke out. It breaks out quite far out of that lamniforms order. So the family is Mitsukurinidae. And then the genus is Mitsukurina. And then the species is Mitsukurina austani. So classified off Japan in 1898. That's when the first species was found. So obviously named after the scientists that, that found them way back then. Now, what's interesting about goblin sharks, Angie, because the physiology plays into this, is in in the early 20th century, like you said, there are very few found. They thought there were separate species because their jaws were fixed at different locations. So they thought, oh, this one looks different, so this must be a different species. But it was just that the jaws were uh, out like we're going to talk about here in a minute, the protruded out. So after 
later in the 20th century, they realized that they did had the special ability and now it's a single species and the only one left in that family. Now, like we that said, we know about <laughs> that we know about exactly. There, there could be other things down there. Like I said, like Angie said, sharks have lived here longer than trees over 450 million years ago. They were way back here through every mass extinction. They're the ones that survived these mass extinctions. We know our modern sharks didn't emerge until the Jurassic period about 200 million years ago. And again, the only thing we have from sharks are their teeth. That's it. That's the only fossils we really find. You know, sometimes we find other structures, but, you know, because they're cartilage, it, it takes something very, very special to preserve any sort of, of body. So what all we have is this dentin, which is harder in the bone uh, and teeth. And that's how we know a lot about our, our sharks. Now, like Angie said, very ancient. This is the oldest species in lamniniforms. Again, we don't know a lot about them, but what scientists do know is they emerged about 125 million years ago, that family. Mm -hmm. And then goblin sharks, you know, closest relative, probably about 50 million years ago. And we have confirmed some of this with DNA that, yeah, very ancient. This was a very ancient shark uh, compared to most of the, the modern sharks. But that's about all we know about them. <laughs> yeah, I was having a fun reading about other living fossil fish, uh, and because just I'm just like, gosh, they've been around so long, and they usually are kind of weird looking. Uh, for instance, another example is the frilled shark, which actually almost resembles a snake, and they think it might be 350 million years old, and then the lamprey. Uh, which is, of course, is a the parasitic jawless fish that often rides on shark on bigger sharks, and then for freshwater, the sturgeon, which I grew up with in uh, freshwater of, of, of Lake of, in the freshwater lakes of Michigan. So that's a fossil fish, and it actually has a retractable jaw similar to the goblin shark, which I didn't know that. So now I'm now I'm curious to learn more about the sturgeon. Uh, and then lastly, the gar, G-A-R, which is a mm-hmm. freshwater fish. Um, so yeah, there's other, there's other really ancient living fossil fish out there. And the goblin shark definitely falls into this category, which is so oh, cool. I know. And that's a good list of, of species we should do sturgeon. And then isn't it like the, the gar, what do you have in Florida rivers? Like they're right there too. You have the alligator gar. So Go dangle, go dangle your, your toes in the rivers around you. Besides the alligators, you have alligator gar. <laughs> I remember that. That's awesome. So, some facts about them, Angie. They think they live up to 60 years. Again, we don't obviously don't know fully. Before we jump into that nose and that jaw, I mean, some radical physiology. Any other facts that you came up with? Well, yes, Chris, the goblin shark has a really unique liver. It's really large compared to its body size and really oily. So it basically takes up so much room and is oily, which makes it almost as dense as water. So it helps the goblin shark float along really easily and doesn't require much movement while it's hunting. We'll talk a lot about how it hunts, but 
it can just kind of float around and like basically sneak up on its prey instead of having these really fast movements. Like if you think of a thrasher or uh, just a normal shark that can be very stealthy and, and move really quickly and turn really tight. The goblin shark doesn't have to do that. Uh, and so a lot of that is because of this giant oily liver. So I thought that was really fascinating. And then, Chris, of course, we can't talk about the goblin shark without talking about the nose or the snout, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, that surfboard or ironing board that sticks out a good ways uh, from its nose area. And it's super flat. So researchers hypothesize that this large snout is probably used to help detect its prey instead of actually as a hunting weapon. And similar to other species of shark, there's a lot, there's pores on the bottom side of this snout that are able to detect faint electrical signals that the other fish give off. And this organ, these pores are called the ampullae of Lorenzini. And they're electrical sensing organs to be able to, I guess, for lack of better terms, help the goblin shark feel prey in its area. And because it's so dark down there and the depths of the water pitch black and they, their eyes are pretty much useless. Uh, and so this long snout, almost like a hammerhead, right? Like a hammerhead's uh, snout is, her head is shaped like a hammer much differently, but it's just loaded with these ampullae of Lorenzini that help it detect electrical signals. So... That's what researchers speculate as to mm -hmm. why it maybe had this weird shape on top of its head. Um, but, of course, there could be other reasons that they're missing. They they wonder if it might actually use its snout to um, move or dig up food that are, is at the bottom mm -hmm. um, in the sand area. Um, of the ocean. Uh, of course, it's never been recorded before. So this is just, this is just speculation. But most likely this now is just a giant built in homing device that helps yeah. them hunt, yeah. for lack of better terms. Yeah, we and we haven't really covered we, we always mention them in, in recent episodes, it's worth a review. These ampullae of Lorenzini, just how crazy they are. It, it, it's, you know, you have hundreds of 1000s, if not a, a million or two of these pores on the the head or the snout of the goblin, sh goblin shark and then each pore is is a canal that has small hairs in it so it's like our ear hair or whatever that's inside our ear canals and some of us more than others <laughs> yes especially men <laughs> but yeah, I'm always like, oh, those... honey, did you forget your ears? <laughs> Go back to the barber. Yeah, just get yes. the ears. But each canal has a small chamber that leads to, it's, it's gel filled of the ampulla. And then there's nerve cells in there. And so they are able to detect electrical signals. And leading into that is this jaw, Angie, because I can see in my head, I can visualize this goblin shark swimming, scanning, and then it it can detect prey with its nose, its ampullae of Lorenzini, and then snap, out comes that jaw, right? Mm -hmm. Exactly. And that's what makes it so unique as a hunter, as a shark, because 
once it senses that prey, it's like a, it must, I mean, we, we don't have that, right? Like I can rub a balloon on my hair and make my hair stand up a little bit, um, due to the electric current that I'm creating by rubbing a balloon on my hair. But I mean, and we can, we can feel a little static electricity if we put our hand on something or our socks, but we can't really feel it the way that they do. So I, I basically call it like a sixth sense, right? For spooky October. Uh, but that comes, you know, they, they feel that, they sense that, uh, and they know that the prey is whatever distance it is, and they're just lurking there in these dark waters. And that poor little uh, squid or crustacean uh, ha- really doesn't have a chance because the physiology of this jaw is incredible. So basically what happens is the jaws drop down, and then they protrude forward. And by forward, I mean a far ways, which was studied by um, scientists and was published in Nature, which I'll talk about in a minute. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as they protrude forward, they basically trap the prey in the mouth and then they snap shut and then reverse the jaw to put it back where it belongs. And the prey is caught in there and didn't even know that the strike was coming because the fish didn't really move, right? The jaw moved. Mm-hmm. And it's just such a strange movement of of this lower jaw, upper and lower jaw. They act as a unit together. It, they remind me of, I don't know, when you were kids, remember how you had those wind-up teeth? Like you'd wind them up and then they'd chatter and they'd like bounce along a table? <laughs> It's alien. I'm telling you, it's from the alien from the alien movies, how it, it can extend its jaw out and bite. It, it It's insane. And, yeah. and I read as fast as 3.1 meters per second. It's the fastest of any fish. And up to 10% of their body length is how far it can go out. Right. So that was the paper in Nature. Yeah. So yeah. because yeah. Of, yeah. And, and um, published in uh, June of 2016. And it's titled Slingshot Feeding. Of the goblin shark. And yeah, they found that, uh, like you said, the maximum velocity was 3.1 meters per second. And the length that it, the jaw reached out was 8.6 to 9.44% of its total body length. So they, it's basically the fastest and greatest protrusion among all sharks. And so it's crazy. It's, and so, I mean, I, and I just love that that was in nature. Like, how cool is that? I know, uh, I know. But it made me wonder, well, how, why and how, right? And so doing a little bit more digging, um, a lot of people, a lot of researchers that have found these dead specimens from fishermen have done necropsies on them and found that they have a double set of ligaments in their jaws that sit pretty strangely along the cheekbone. And by double, I mean just two uh, sets. And remember the ligaments attach bone to bone, or in this case, because sharks don't have bone, it'd be cartilage to cartilage. So cartilage from probably like the zygomatic area of the skull, the cheek area of the skull to the jaw. And these ligaments, when the goblin shark is just sitting there, they're contracted. So the minute, I guess by the second, right? Meters per second. The second that that jaw starts to drop down I don't. I don't want to say unhinged because it's not hinged in there, but is it's basically the um, ligaments relaxing, right? The mm-hmm. ligaments relaxing, mm-hmm. 
from the two pieces to, so it can be stretched further. And once they, once the jaws are completely protruded and the prey is trapped in the, um, within the teeth and then the ligaments contract, making them smaller again. So the jaw is set back in its normal position, which still isn't super beautiful, no, <laughs> but it's, no, no, but no. it looks more normal. No. That, uh, it looks like a, a more of a normal shark mouth. Uh, and so that these special ligaments doing their job to be able to enable the shark to have this radical movement. And then a gentleman named Clinton Duffy, who is a conservation biologist with the New Zealand Department of Conservation mm-hmm. in, in your area, mm-hmm. he was describing this about is how the ligaments and then some muscles are help enable the goblin shark to do this. But he said that this rapid movement, because it happens like, you mentioned Chris so fast, right? Uh, that the prey doesn't even know it hit it. He suggests that this movement, this expansion, uh, creates a vacuum that helps suck the prey into the shark's mouth because it's so fast. Mm-hmm. So I thought, and and he describes this vacuum effect being very highly developed, and also made possible by a structure called a a basal, which is similar to a tongue but it's made out of cartilage. And so that also helps with the basically vacuum that's created to help suck in the prey and keep the prey in there. Um, And then they get chomped on by those little hundreds and hundreds of needle-like teeth. It makes me think of mantis shrimp, which is, I know we don't like invertebrates or crustaceans. (laughs) Oh, we have to cover the mantis shrimp. Oh my gosh. I know. I know. It makes me think of it because I think that's like the fastest creature on earth as far as when it Doing snaps it. shut, it like creates plasma. <laughs> it's so fast. But right. so the, the goblin shark doesn't create plasma, but it's fast, no, right? No. Yeah. Uh and but then we should mention the teeth too, these snaggle tooth fang like, which is good, <laughs> good good for October. Yep. They're very slender teeth, uh, similar to those of the uh of a sand tiger shark, but they have three rows of about 25 teeth that are all crooked and needle-like, like they're not they're not very pretty, um, that line both the tops and the bottoms of its gums. So once that jaw protrudes, even maybe gets a tiny part of the prey, and then that vacuum uh, that's also created from the motion, I mean, the, uh, the, the prey doesn't have a chance. But it's impor- important to note, too, that these slender kind of fang-like teeth, they're, they're more for... Um, chewing or smashing and not necessarily crushing, I guess, for, for lack of better terms and not for shredding and tearing. Like if you think of a great white shark. Yeah. Yeah. Or tiger shark. But yeah, like their rear teeth are, are modified. They're, they're not as sharp and they crunch for any crustaceans or something like that. Yeah. But so yeah, they're cool. just, yeah, they are, <laughs> they are. And I mean, and like you said, they eat squid, crustaceans, maybe some octopus, bottom dwelling fish, maybe crabs. But again, we don't know because haven't really observed that much of them. Just what, what's been found in their stomachs, the the very few that have been brought up and looked at. Well, yeah. And I should have probably mentioned it earlier, but, but what we do know about this slingshot feeding from the goblin shark was um, from diving teams uh, in Japan that were actually able to successfully record a few strikes of the behavior of uh, two goblin sharks at sea in 2008 and 2011. How so, fun would that be to see one of those? Like, yeah, oh, it's yeah. just so rare. Uh, but it's, it's, I mean, what? Yeah, what a sight to be seen. You don't blink though. If you blink, you'll miss it. <laughs> I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. Well, I mean, 
So what behavior do we know? I mean, what do we know of them? Not a lot at all. Um, like I said, the ones under human care died after a day, and this is many, many, many years ago. But because of its uh, physiology and morphology, it uh, we do think that it feeds on migratory fish, uh, which means it's probably going to do most of its hunting in the evening or in the morning when these migrations are happening, when fish are actively swimming around. But we we don't really know a lot of when it feeds and with its body style and uh, small fins and kind of rubbery skin uh, researchers hypothesize it is a very slow moving animal, which is so different than other sharks, right? If we think of a normal shark, the way it can turn on a dime and the speeds that it can travel. Uh, but the goblin shark, we think just kind of hangs out and waits for, it to food to come towards it and then lets the jaws do the rest of its work. So, uh, yeah, probably not moving too quick, chasing prey and things like this. It's more of a hangout and more of an ambush, I guess, predator, uh, on some of these migratory fish. And once again, or perhaps maybe digging in the sand for some crustaceans that, that it can sense, but we haven't documented that. So a lot of that is just speculation. And, as far as the social nature of it, I we don't we don't know, um, but it seems to probably be a solitary creature because when it's been found, when it's been fished, it's not you know it's not these large massive groups of them that are found. It's usually a singleton here, a singleton there. Mm-hmm. So uh, it probably means they live alone and just come together to breed. Yeah, there's just not a lot. I mean, just you know, slow moving, sluggish. Cruising the depths. The- rarely seen, rarely studied. Yeah. So all of you aspiring marine biologists out there, um, there's a new species that needs you. Yeah, they're wanting to exploit the ocean. So there should be some opportunities to go out there and do some environmental assessments. Yeah, yeah definitely. Good, good, good field. Dare I ask about repro? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, it's going to be very similar. We don't know much. Um but because it's in the mackerel shark family lineage, more or less, they think that it might have similar characteristics. Uh, and so they've never found a pregnant female or anything like that. But being in the mackerel shark family, they're thinking that it's probably um, viviparous, which means that it's an internal fertilization where the embryos will grow inside of the female goblin shark during gestation and that the litter sizes are small and the births would be live. But once again, we don't know that for sure. Um, there could be, they could lay eggs like other sharks externally. So looking at the different specimen of goblin sharks that have been caught um, over the past couple hundred years, uh, we can, researchers can kind of estimate what they think the size of a young goblin shark would be, uh, and their estimates are around 32 inches or a couple feet in length when it's born. And similar to all their species of shark is that they're most, they're independent as soon as they're born. And there's no reason to think that would be any different in the goblin shark. Uh, so mom and dad don't play a role at all in their development. They're on their own to do their thing. And researchers estimate that they probably reach sexual maturity when they're two to three meters in length. But once again, that's just using what we know from other species of sharks that are similar in size. 
So yeah, not really a lot, not really a lot, but that makes it fun, right? That that's mm-hmm. why we're here uh, to keep learning more. I mean, I my, I hope that we cover the species again in ten years and we know that much more about them, right? Know, like their numbers, we have no idea how many there are. No, no, no. I mean, that's why they're least concerned. I mean, we we don't know, and they're not targeted by fishermen. You know, they they, they accidentally get caught. Um, just a lot, a lot to, you know, unknown. And like I said, conservation tip, I mean, we're going to keep, we're going to keep our eyes to this deep sea mining stuff and, and, and see what's going on. Cause it's not in the news. People aren't really hearing about it. So we'll definitely keep, keep watching that. But who did you want to highlight this week with organizations? So yeah, Chris, this week, I definitely want to give a big shout out to Josh. So make sure and go to Instagram and follow him at Josh, J-O-S-H dot C dot Carter, which is C-A-R-T-E-R. It'll be on our show notes. And he's a huge fan of Seed Legacy. Um, He's going to send all of his proceeds to both Seed Legacy and Born Free, who we'll be talking to soon. Uh, So Seed Legacy, since we are in the ocean today, uh, they can be found at SeedLegacy.org. And they just do in incredible, incredible work. We'll put their webpage up on our show notes. You can follow them on social media. Their Instagram account is literally eye candy. And the photos by Paul Nicklin, um, N-I-C-K-L-E-N. If you're not following him on Instagram as well, it's just, I mean, like I said, just incredible. And I'm not even doing it justice. But anyways, uh, Sea Legacy, their mission is to create a healthy and abundant oceans for us and the planet. And they do this through so many different uh, collective ways, working, uh, of course, with scientists. And Sea Legacy combines years of experience of conservation uh, with beautiful photography, as I mentioned, uh, communication, education, so social technologies to just help our oceans be healthy, stay healthy, and the uh, creatures inhabit them. And I'm, once again, I'm not doing them justice because they have so many projects around the world um, that are helping help the ocean one solution at a time, uh, creating lasting, sustainable change. They're just a fantastic organization. Josh has inspired me. I'm like, I got to get somebody on there from uh, on our podcast from Sea mm-hmm. Legacy because I've mm-hmm. been following them for so long. So Sea Legacy is S E A L E G A C Y dot org. And um and you can find them on our show notes. And uh yeah, they're they're just an incredible group. Yep. And uh, it's it's good that there are organizations like that out there fighting for our oceans because we need to. You know, we need oh, to yeah. exploring I mean, and yeah, and, and that's like how we're gonna help the goblin shark, right? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Well, good episode. Good start to spooky October. Spooky October. <laughs> my voice is spooky right now. <laughs> I've got like a goblin shark in my throat right now. <laughs> All right. Well, stay tuned. Next week, we've got a good lineup coming. Some fun species to talk about. Some crazy, crazy behaviors. Oh, my goodness. I yes. And join us on Patreon if you haven't already. And you can help vote for some of these spooky species that we'll cover mm-hmm. towards the end of the month. And uh, we look forward to bringing you some new content next week. All right. Take care. Thank you, everyone. Listen, learn, share. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com.